Right now in America, one in 10 people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. And of those, some 50 to 90% will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them may never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm an alcoholic with nearly three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, it's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery. People sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. This is Ron Chapman. Welcome back to Progressive Recovery. And I have been really looking forward to this conversation, which is overtly about the 12th step, which we'll talk about in a moment. I'm delighted because I have watched Lindy and Karen, our guests today, practicing the program. And you need to know that they, between the two of them, got almost 70 years in recovery that, as I've observed them, has been progressive in nature. By that, I mean that the things that are happening for them today, while in some ways are a lot like they once may have been, they've been transformed, that they, they thrive. I see them as blossoming. And so they're two people I admire very much. Lindy, Karen, welcome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much, Ron. So overtly, this 12th step, you all would know this as well as I do. Uh, you know, we're going to have this spiritual awakening. As a result of these steps, we're going to practice these principles in all our affairs. We're going to carry this message to others. But before we jump into where we go with this from a progressive recovery point of view, we'd like to hear a little bit about both of your stories, about what got you into this remarkable path. And Lindy, if you'd like to go first, jump right in and tell us about your story. What brought you to recovery? Okay, Ron, I'm happy to do that. Um, so I am an alcoholic woman. I also uh, used every drug that I could find in my early years. Um, I've been a sober woman for 38 years. I'm wow. very, very blessed to and have so much grace in my life. Um, I had my first drink when I was 15 years old in Springfield, Massachusetts, where my family was. We had a large family, and alcoholism was everywhere in my family. Um, I never wanted to drink, but uh, peer pressure made me pick up that four-pack of Colt 45-16 ounces and choke it down. And um, the first drink, like I've heard so many times in uh, different places, was magic for me. Um, it made me feel pretty and smart and daring and enough. Mm. It made me feel enough, uh, which I didn't know until I picked up a drink that I hadn't felt like enough. So uh, it worked its magic. Um, I drank every chance that I had following that. Um, this was in the, the early 1970s, and so I was a hippie. You know, I smoked a lot of weed. I did a lot of other um, chemicals that I could find, and they were not very consequential for me. I didn't get in a lot of trouble. I didn't have arrests but I used as often as I could. Um, my mother died, I believe, of alcoholism, although they call it um, vascular illness, uh, at age 39, very unexpectedly, and that is when my drinking really t 
took off. Um, and I was only like 16 years old. Um, and so I drank every day. Um, I traveled about the country. Um, I hitchhiked. I got on planes. I found friends. I went to Florida. I went to California. I became a bartender. I always could earn enough money. I had no ties anywhere. Um, my father had gotten sober um, in 1974. And, you know, I would visit him from time to time, and I paid attention. I watched the light come on in my father's eyes. And he saw a problem. I remember him asking me if I would uh, be interested in going to a meeting with him when I was probably about 18 years old. And I thought, no. You know, I expected everyone was old and damaged beyond what my father was. And I had no interest in that. But I remember him asking. Um, and so I just continued this vagabond lifestyle as a bartender woman, losing a little piece of myself every single day. There was a large amount of promiscuity, of dishonesty. There was some illegal activity, you know, because I needed what I needed, and so stealing was an option for me. Um, people came and went from my life. Uh, the men that I attracted uh, continued to be more and more abusive the more I drank, which to me was just a demonstration of my worth. I invited people in who validated what I believed, which was that I am really hopeless woman. And, um, and so I did that. Um, it was, you know, as long as it worked. Uh, interesting, uh, the last drink, I quit drinking in January, on January 1st of 1977. I had decided a week earlier. And I said, oh, I will quit drinking for a month to prove I don't have a problem and I couldn't make it. I had to pick up a drink at one point. I don't know how many weeks. I remember ordering the scotch. And, um, and so I thought I will die this way. I was 23 years old. And then in, uh, around St. Patrick's Day that very year, I was getting ready to go out with my friend uh, to this place in Miami, which is where I was living at the time. And I showed up at Vincent's door, and I was crying because I would drink and just sob because it stopped working. The alcohol just stopped working. I was just desperately alone. And Vincent looked at me, and he said, God, sometimes you really disgust me. And I saw this look of disgust on his face, and I knew that this is the best it would ever get. I knew this is what I have. This is my life. And the next morning when I came to, I slept on his sofa. And um, I looked in the mirror, and I knew that every time I drink, I will get to this place, because it had stopped working. It didn't take away my pain anymore. I was just left with the, the self-hatred and loathing. And you know, I believe that, um, that a miracle happened that moment because I didn't want to pick up a drink. I smoked the shakes away for a couple of days, went back to the Miami Marina Forum with both hands at that bar, but I didn't drink. And, um, and 
you know, the drugs were not a big deal, so they just went by the wayside, and I, and I just didn't drink. The, the obsession had been removed. That little bit of truth about who and what I was and what I had become was enough to lift that obsession, and I just did not want to do that. I didn't want it, which is such grace to me. And so I found my way into, the, into some rooms, uh, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and I found a lot of help. Um, I also moved again. I moved to Southern California um, in that first couple of months without a drink. And, um, and in Southern California and in 1977, there was already a young people's movement that was unbelievable. And I fit right in. I loved it. I uh, stayed away from women. I stayed away from women's meetings. And I, but I did the fun things, which was enough. I asked four women to be my sponsor. And then I never called them again. But it was enough for me to get a start. And soon the willingness came to go to NEA. And I had bright models. And so that's really my beginning. Thank you, Lindy. Thank you, Ron. Karen, how about you? Well, I'll tell you, I um, remember my first drink being at my grandfather's bar. It was a Shirley Temple. It had no alcohol in it. And I remember the feeling of belonging sitting there with my grandfather and my father. And I would say that was my first drink. If I fast forward a little bit, that was when I was maybe 10 or 12. We moved to England when I was 15. I'm, a, I'm in a family of five girls. I have a twin sister. My twin and I could drink as soon as we put our nose to the pub bar. As soon as it, it was level with the bar, you could, you could drink. So um, it was easy to get alcohol in England. It was easy to sneak it. My father uh, was an alcoholic. He had a cask of sherry on the counter, and nobody could see the level that it was uh, being reduced, and I would go past that cask and get al alcohol out of there, sherry out of there, and it would be a warm feeling. I liked the feeling that I had. And uh, the, the drinking continued through high school. We went to college there for a couple years. And the drinking escalated, but at this point it really wasn't a problem. But I always drank to get drunk. And my twin sister would cover for me. And she'd, she would um, let me run up the stairs, and then I would uh, go, go get sick. And she would cover for me with my parents. So uh, the drinking ended up getting worse when I moved to the States to go to college. And it was still drinking to get drunk. I'm a, a lifelong journaler. I've journaled since I was 10. So I have every drink, when I drank, how much I drank, what happened. I have quotes. And one of the quotes that I had written in 1971 was, all the alcohol does is liberate the sense of sin that saner moments suppresses. And it was from Bertrand Russell. And my I went to a girls' Catholic college, and that theology wraps through my whole drinking story. The, 
the, the Catholic guilt. And so throughout college, my drinking escalated to the point where um, I had people telling me they didn't want to be around me. My, sis my twin sister didn't even want to room with me. So I ended up meeting my husband to be, and my drinking stopped being as bad as it was. He was a good influence on me. We got married, and I was so drunk on my wedding day that he didn't forgive me for years. Mm. Um, he, he was really tolerant of my drinking. We both drank. He was tolerant of my drinking, and it was, I was in my 30s, so there was a lot of drinking any, going on anyway. But what happened was this theology wraps into the next couple years because I ended up getting pregnant, and uh, our first daughter was full-term stillborn. And as I was giving birth to her, all I could think of is that I'm being punished for all my wild behavior in college. And then I had two miscarriages, and the same theologies wrapped through all this. So I ended up having lots of adventures as a, as a at-home mother drinking. It was periodic drinking, but I always drank to get drunk. And I had uh, a lot of lectures from my husband. I actually had friends tell me they didn't want me to come back to their parties anymore. Um, and I ended up finally having children and drinking through those pregnancies, which at the time nobody knew how, how much alcoholism affected you. And um, the drinking escalated to the point where I was drinking daily towards the end, and what stopped me drinking, I have to say, it was probably shame and guilt and loss of self-respect. Those are the, the feelings that I can tell you I felt. Um, so I, I ended up going to a New Year's party, and um, it was a neighbor who I respected very much, and the, the family, I was shameless. And the next morning I woke up, and like Lindy's story, my husband was so repulsed by my behavior the night before that when I said, oh, my God, it's alcohol, that's what my problem is, he said, get away from me. And I think that rejection was, it was my bottom. And so I stopped drinking, and I had been in a carpool with a lot of women that were praying for me, and I thought it was because I swore all the time, but I, I remember one of them saying to me, after I said, why don't you drink, she said, you can't put the spirit of God in the same body as the spirit of alcohol, and that kind of sat with me, so here, all this stuff's coming back to me after I stopped drinking, it's all, all these things people have said and my behavior, and uh, I ended up going to my first meeting to stay. I'd gone to one AA meeting the, the year before, and I thought, I'm not like those alcoholics. They're, they look, they're smoking, they're sitting on milk crates, they look ugly. You know, I'm, I'm just a princess. I'm, I'm not an alcoholic. Well, I ended up going January 24th, but excuse me, before I went, uh, January 6th, I was lying in bed, and I had read this book about how to pray instead of talking to God, listen. And I raised my hands in the air, and I'd never done this before, and I said, God, please help me. And I saw a hand with me in it and a hand pushing me, and I went peacefully to sleep. 
And that was not my spiritual awakening. The spiritual awakening was the next morning when I called my twin. And she lived in another state, and she said, Oh, my God, I've been praying for you to be in the palm of God's hand for three years. I didn't know what was wrong with me. And I have stayed. My anniversary date's January 1st, 1985, and I, I haven't looked back. Here I am, sober today. So i got to say this while it's fresh. Uh, I used to live where you two now live, and I have missed you so much. I just realized as I was listening. Um, yeah. So thank you for having this conversation. It's wonderful to share the space. And so you set up the segue, Karen, you, this idea of, of having had a spiritual awakening. As a result of these steps, what in the world does a spiritual awakening look like to the two of you today? I mean, you've been at this for 38 and 31 years. What's a spiritual awakening to you today? What have these steps produced in you? Either of you want to jump in? Yeah, there's a line in the literature that I read often, and it says, we have ceased fighting anyone or anything. It may not be verbatim, but, um, you know, I have a transformed life. I, I have um, a sense of reconciliation with myself. I don't expect perfection. I'm a flawed human being, but I don't have to hurt myself anymore with my thinking. There's this acceptance of self. There's an acceptance of others. There's a desire to not want to control. There's um, an acceptance of powerlessness because, and there's also this strong faith that what I've come to believe more than anything is that God's will for me is enough and that whatever he has in store for me will satisfy my deepest need and my deepest purpose so I don't have to fear it anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that I am happy every day, but I do enjoy a stillness in a quietness of my, of my, just who I am, uh, more than I ever did, more than I ever thought possible. I think it's a, that's probably the best summary I have. So I, I'm so struck by something you just said, because one of the things that popped out, Mindy, in your, in your beginning was that you just couldn't be enough. Mm -hmm. And yet what you just said was, it is enough for me today. Some hole in you has been filled. Absolutely full. That's remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of hard work, though, but, <laughs> you know, the gift of willingness. Why do I get to do this? Why do I every day say, okay, God, here we go? How about you, Karen? What's this spiritual awakening look like for you today? Well, it's not the same as what it looked like in the beginning, but I will say the, the steps to me are an intentional path of transformation. And that's that transformation, that turning around, my whole life changed um, to the point that I had a husband that didn't even want, he didn't even, he didn't even like the fact that I was sober anymore because I had changed so much. I ended up becoming me. 
And when you're an identical twin and you're in a marriage that's a patriarchal marriage, you grew up in a patriarchal household, you grew up in a patriarchal religion, and you grew up as a twin and everyone else is, I don't know, expecting something from you, and you learn that you can become yourself, I guess that's what my transformation has been. And I guess for me today, very much like Lindy, I like to take care of myself. And it's not just physical. I mean, it's emotional. It's, it's taking that deep journey. It's um, nurturing my spirit in many different ways, walking, um, classes. It's journaling. It's um, ongoing, learning more about myself. It's even looking at the character traits that I don't like and learning to be friends with them um, so that I can be gentle with myself. And, you know, I guess my spiritual awakenings, they're, they're often and many. They come in dreams. They come in yoga. They come while I read. They come while I listen to other people. Um, they're, they're unique. I never know when they're going to happen. Perfect. It makes me want to transition now, but before we do, because again, part of this is about, we know you work with others, and that's part of the boilerplate of, of the 12th step, and this idea of practicing one principles in all of one's affairs. But Lindy mentioned something as we were prepping, and I'd like you to pick up here, Karen, and then we'll see what Lindy says. Because one of the first things Lindy said was, I can never forget who I am and where I come from. I may be experiencing this extraordinary spiritual awakening, but I'm still that person who could drink and in some cases drug. So how do you keep it green, as they would say today, Karen? And Lindy, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. How do you stay ground? I mean, 31 years, any listener is going to say, oh, come on. But you have to do something to stay grounded in that reality, right? I'd say I'm a prolific reader so that I'm, I, I, can, I can lift a quote from every book that I've ever read. I live on the quotes. Um, I'm an avid personality theorist, and so there's one particular personality theory that I get a meditation daily that tells me the truth about who I really am, um, and they're not all positive. I, um, I've been in... 12-step studies the last three years. Um, I've been retired, so the 12-step studies have been refreshing me because I had not done that since I first got sober because I'd been a, a working woman. And I would say it's just even being at meetings and listening to other people. I, I change and grow. I have to listen. I want to say just a quick thing about why this is important because there's this there's this coexistence of being able to live in sobriety experience the benefits of sobriety but never forgetting who we are which is something I heard you pointing to Lindy that segues beautifully out of Karen's comments what do our listeners need to hear about that Lindy well I something a friend of mine said the other day and I don't think I've ever heard it said before but she said I wake up every morning with untreated alcoholism and I thought, that's it. Every day, I wake up with untreated alcoholism. And from my very first sponsor, I was taught, 
the simple disciplines that will keep me sober are the most important disciplines that I will ever, ever form in my life. And from it come a full life from those. So I still have those very disciplined things that I have always done. Um, I have set prayers that I say. I, uh, I practice these steps, certainly, on a fairly regular basis. I take women through the book. The book, the big the book. The book, the book. Yeah, okay. We read together. I make them underline and go to the dictionary <laughs> and write, and, um, and I'm there with them. I, um, I show up where I say I'm going to be. I mean, I show up in my meeting. But the other thing that keeps it fresh for me is that um, although I live this life with great peace, I also, the illness is never too far from the surface. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean that I live with a lot of extreme pain because I don't. But I've become, um, they say the road gets narrower, and for me that means that any deviation from the peace that I'm accustomed to doesn't feel very good. So I'm so used to being in the middle of the road that when I, when I get off the yellow line, um, I, I have to figure out what I'm afraid of. What have I stopped doing? What do I need to address? What, what do I need to surrender? Have I gotten too busy? Have, am I engaging in more negative thought than is normal for me? I mean, there's a lot of things, but all, I don't hurt myself because of those things. I'm a human being, and I think that they're God's beautiful little gracious nudge closer to him. And I need nudges sometimes because complacency for me is not a good thing. So uh, that's kind of it. Now we segue to what I've really been waiting for, right? Y'all are smiling. I am too. There's so much that is said about what it is to practice these principles in all our affairs. But I use two words in particular, and I'm actually interviewing both of you because I think you are the embodiment of this, which I know all credit to the power that has made this possible. But still, you all are living embodiment of this in my mind. And those words were that I see you two as thriving and as blossoming. I, mean, I, re- I, I watched you for years. I listened to you for years. I watched the look on your face right now. And you have become wise women. You have become the antithesis of the brokenness that you all were talking about. And so purpose, for the purposes of hope, you know, in the rooms they talk about experience, strength, and hope, I'm especially interested in what people should hear about this quality of your thriving. What is it like today for you? to be this long-time, sober woman that clearly so many people would look up to, and I know they do. I have no regrets about any of my life. I'd say thriving means you have to be intentional. And I I guess I'd say I've been, I had a very intentional life. I mean, and it's goal-oriented. Like Lindy's, there's disciplines to it. But I see the disciplines bringing me freedom, and the freedom is to be able to um, learn about myself so I will be of value to others. I think the more I, I learn about who I am as a person in recovery, whether it's my broken relationships with women that I've had this year, 
or my ego that wants to resist things. All these things have helped me to become a wiser person because I have to, I have to pray and think about what is it, what is it that's going to bring me love, what's going to bring love to other people. Everything that I do, I have to think about, is it a loving act? Is it a loving thought? Am I doing self-loving self behaviors? And I think wisdom comes from your experiences. And I'd say it's the not the positive experiences, it's the negative ones. It's the betrayal. It's losing the job. It's going through depression with people you love. It's the substance abuse, you know, in, in your family. It's... Um, just taking good care of yourself through all the, the hard times. And just, I, I got this from an author named Sark, and I don't think I'm quoting it right, but you cradle your feelings and fears and even your experiences like they're little babies. And you just don't look at them as you need to throw them away. So Karen, I gotta, I gotta ask this question because I'm imagining some listeners saying, a, why in the world would I want to deal with all that awful, difficult stuff? And B, this sounds like an awful lot of work. So why do you, why do you persist? What's, what's the heart of the payoff for you? I guess I get to really be myself. I, I don't want to tell my... Uh, truth is the highest value for me. And I don't want to be deceitful. I don't want to be blind to who I am. And the more I know me, the more I know you. The less I judge me, the less I judge you. So it is hard work. I mean, I've had a lot of therapy. I've had, <laughs> you know, I've had to go through lots of trials in order to. And I, I'm, I'm an introspective person. It's dangerous to be around me. You don't want to be around <laughs> me if you don't want to be awake. That's what I say. I, I want to be awake. I want to be conscious and awake. And if you're coming with me, come with me. If you're not. It's kind of hard to be around me. So I don't know. I, I like being sober, but I, I like being awake and sober, not just sober. It's not enough. I'm reminded of something you said a little earlier on. I, I think if I'm recalling correctly that you, um, a big piece of this has been about really finding who you are and being who you are, which is what I just heard you giving voice to. Uh, I, I went on a journey to become a twin individual. <laughs> so Lindy what's it like today for you what is this you know how's this you know, blossoming that I see in you manifest wow that's really a hard question to answer actually I think um, what is my life like today um, I have uh, solid rich relationships with the people in my life, my children, my grandchild, my husband, my friends, my newer friends, my older friends that I've had for decades. I mean, we continue to have uh, true and lasting relationships, which I'm taught that I could have. It's one of the promises that we could have true and lasting relationships with other human beings. I have those. Um, I have a wonderful professional life. You know, I have learned how to um, push through my fears. Because I'm, I, what I've discovered about myself is I'm a very fearful person. I don't know that I could have articulated that in my early years. But at my core, there's, which I think is the illness, self-centered fear. So 
I'm a fearful person at my core. Yet because I'm a sober woman practicing these principles and trusting to the best of my ability, I push through. And so when I push through, I discover what I can do and how much I can serve and how I can live a life of purpose and harmony. I don't remember the last resentment that I've had. Mm. I mean, you know, I've had some doozies over the years, yet they're not part of my life anymore because I have this mechanism to not give people my peace unnecessarily. You know, I get to I get to trust that even those move me to a place of freedom, which I want. I want freedom. I wake up in the morning. Even when I have to work, I wake up early because I want my time to just sit with my cup of coffee and a, and a heart full of gratitude and just be with myself doing whatever it is I'm reading or whatever it is I'm doing. I'm, I'm just present there and kind of get the day centered. And I didn't know how to do that. Uh, I'll always have to work at um, not running. You know, I'm a runner. I, I was born a runner, you know, I'm running. And I can run into activities today where I can pack it in so full that I kind of lose that whatever it is that I'm trying to describe, that centered feeling. Um, but more days than not, I don't do that. And so that's pretty good. Um, I have a transformed life and, and a lot of gratitude. But it's not even, and it's not supposed to be. And that I know, that my life is not a straight line. It's, there's a curve to it, and I'll take that. I like it. It's the way it's supposed to be. Karen, you had a thought that was, just jumped to your face. Yeah, I was just thinking about the transformed life. And um, growing up, there was no power in our household. And, you know, it's interesting. It has to do with this belief in God and where does the power lie. And unlike Lindy, although I was a very fear, fearful child, in recovery, I have not run away from, I've run towards. So everything that I was afraid of, I moved towards it. I was afraid to go back to school. I went back to school. I wanted to see what kind of power I had. So I wanted to see what my intellectual power was like, my physical power in the gym, my spiritual power, um, going back to school and becoming a spiritual director, um, emotional power, going back into counseling and, and looking at, you know, facing some of the demons from the past. You know, po inner power was probably one of the most amazing things I learned in my recovery is that the power isn't all outside of me, that the power is given to me inside of me. So power and self-worth were just learning to, to believe that I was worthy to be loved by God. Those were two huge things that just made my life bigger. I don't know how to explain it, but the power to be able to choose and be intentional and live life to the fullest. 
I'm just going to tell you, my Christmas present was to go is to go on a tornado storm chasing vacation. <laughs> I mean, how many people would want to do that? That's not, you can't be afraid and go do that. So that's mm. to me living life a little to the full. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you that um, when I was about maybe two years sober, I think through inventory, I really discovered how deep the fear went, and I and I decided then that I would never knowingly let fear stop me from doing anything. Never knowingly. I mean, there may be times when I'm unaware, I'll give you that, but never knowingly let fear stop me. And you know what? I never have. I've done all of those things that Karen just said. You know, I'm a well-educated, credentialed woman. I pushed through. As, as recently as um, this week, I pushed through. Uh, something that I had uh, some great apprehension to do. You know, I've had a lot of those this year, as a matter of fact. I mean, this year has been a year of transformation, enormous transformation for me from a professional standpoint. And um, and I can remember I was laying in, um, on the, my yoga mat, and I had this overwhelming gratitude for the for the willingness to just say, I can do this. You know, it's a turn in my career, and it's like, I can do this. I I won't be perfect to start, but I can do this. That, how? That's a wonderful life. <laughs> we should make a movie of that. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what's interesting to me, and then I'm going to ask for a final thought from each of you about, about you know, a message of hope. The one thing you think that these years of your recovery would be most valuable to a listener, but... I'm really struck that by the time all was done and said, you both came around to talk about how it is continuing to transform you. Not always comfortably, not always easily, not in the ways you might have expected, but it's like still doing you. Mm -hmm. And it's still remaking who you are. And I have to say that is the most beautiful thing to watch in both of you and to listen to. Mm -hmm. Pretty remarkable. Mm. So... What's a punchline from each of you? Something for the listener, a gem that, uh, that they just can't live without about this life that you're living and why they should be interested in going to these lengths. In a typical Karen fashion, I will end with a quote, and this is a quote I lived on. It is God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. Did I say that right? God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And it is, you will get everything you need, money, wisdom, time, people, everything you need to take whatever journey it is you make a decision to go on. And that is a fact. Um, I learned this when I was new, and I say it often and try to, teach others. Everything is exactly, precisely the way God wants it to be right this minute. And what that means is every life experience, every drink, every day of sorrow, every day of joy, every experience that I've had has been necessary for me to be this person who I am right here today. And that is a teachable, sober, willing woman. And I felt the same when I was early in recovery. And I got great comfort in that because I used to think I should, I should, I should. 
and I know today that everything is exactly, precisely the way God wants it to be right this minute. I don't have to question his will. It is, and it is always enough. I agree with Karen wholeheartedly. I always get what I need, and then some. I never in a lifetime could have imagined having a life like I have today. I have stability. I have a full heart. I have, a, I have beautiful surroundings. What's inside is manifest in my life. All of, everywhere I look. What a way to live. You know, all because I'm just a drunk. I'll take it. I can't tell you how grateful I am to have had a chance to listen to both of you today. You're a testament to the possibilities for all of us, and it's remarkable to listen to. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. This is the final session of Series 1 of the Recovery Sessions. Thanks to all of our guests who gave so freely of their stories, and that includes Karen and Lindy today. To listen to more or to learn more, visit progressiverecovery.org. Better still, please subscribe to our updates. There are excellent special guests in the queue, and we'll soon announce Series 2 of the Recovery Sessions. Thanks again for listening. This is Ron Chapman for Progressive Recovery. Bye for now.